Welcome to Hunting Influence, a podcast by Influence Hunter. We share stories from those that have it and those that leverage it to help you develop what we believe could be the most important skill in business right now, influence. I'm your host, Aaron Kostinets. I'm here today with serial entrepreneur, Joe Anderson. Joe is an entrepreneur who started multiple different companies, such as Walter and Reed Consulting and Chisel. Currently, he is the founder of Mighty Scout, which is a platform that helps companies track and report influencer campaigns. Mighty Scout is a market leader in the category, and Influence Hunter uses it for everything that we do. Joe, it's great to finally have you on here. Hey, thanks for having me, Aaron. Super excited to be on. So I usually like to start these out with having you kind of take me back to your early days. So how did you kind of get started in terms of an on, your entrepreneurial journey? Was this something that you knew you wanted to do when you were younger? Well, I guess when I first got started, I had just graduated and like I was traveling for a bit and I wasn't sure that I wanted to do what I was doing earlier, which was with mechanical engineering. Like the feedback loops were really slow, just like from an idea to getting something out there in the real world. And I always felt like, Something that was much faster would be nice, but I didn't know what that was. So as I was traveling, I think I started to get a chance to explore different like ideas in the sense that I saw different people starting like language schools and different things like that. And I always felt like I wanted to make something, but I didn't know what it was and I wasn't technical. So finally, when I came back to California, where I'm mostly based, then that's when I started learning more about different startup type things. So was, I think. TechCrunch that was posting up a bunch of different articles. And then I heard about like Startup Weekend. And that was pretty much when things started to get rolling in terms of shifting more towards like startups and entrepreneurship. So what was your your college degree and and where were you traveling when you kind of realized that 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 wasn't necessarily what you wanted to stick with? Yeah. So I was studying mechanical engineering and I was in Japan for about a year, year and a half at the time. And during that time, I was like doing a variety of different things. Like I was playing poker and that started to kind of shift my mindset a bit in terms of like how potentially like money worked and like leverage and all sorts of different things. And it started to make yeah things a little bit less traditional. So I didn't feel like going back to like a nine to five was maybe the thing that I wanted to do, but I wanted to find ways to use a bit of like the creativity and just try to find a way to make like a business or make like revenue but like it actually wasn't too apparent as to how I would go about that and it wasn't until I came back and actually ended up getting this like email from I want to say it was like some grocery store at the time and they they said like hey get $50 off like grocery delivery this is like 20 I want to say 2010 ish so really really early and then I was talking to my friend and I was like, hey, this email doesn't make me want to actually do this. I think it could be much better if there was a, you know, a different way. And then he literally said the magic words, like, well, why don't you do this then? Like, why don't you just make something? And that would like change my mind like crazy because I didn't realize that you could actually build stuff. I thought we were just like mostly consumers of everything. So then that's kind of when I went down the rabbit hole of like, okay, how do I actually make something? So this trip, this trip to Japan just kind of completely changed your perspective on everything. And then your friend kind of set off that light bulb 
in terms of like, you know, you can create something. So what was the first company you started and how did you go about that? Yeah, so it actually didn't end up being like the grocery delivery type concept because then I like was learning over time as I tried to make some stuff in that area. I was lacking a lot of different skills. So I first was trying to find like different developers to work with me on it. And then that was really hard because everyone's like, why would I work on this idea? And I also didn't know anything about anything. And then as I started to meet different people, they started telling me about like different ways to like code this myself. And I was like, oh man, this is going to be a big undertaking to learn how to code and all of that. So I just kept meeting more and more people. But then as I worked with others on like some smaller ideas, I realized that like no one was really going to stick it out to try to build something for to see it to fruition in a sense. So things were always half built and all of that. So I ended up saying, okay, I need to just learn how to code and started to learn how to design and code at the same time. So I was just spending like, I don't know, it was eight to 10 hours a day. And I was just like living at home at the time and just teaching myself like how to make stuff. And after that, I started to see like, okay, I can start to make all sorts of different things, but my skill set was still very, very, very minimal. At the time, we were also like meeting older people who were working on different things. And I remember I was talking to a friend and we had this idea around just making really basic websites and then charging monthly to build like a website for like other businesses. And that's pretty much like the first company, which was Walter and Reed Consulting. And the idea behind the name was that we were so new to it. And I remember, I think it was Andrew from Mixergy mentioned an idea where he was also new to entrepreneurship and he came up with some like really crazy name that didn't seem like, you know, he's a beginner or something like that and used that as the company name so that they would maybe be taken more seriously. So that's pretty much how we started that first company. And it's ultimately, I would say like a marketing agency that just like built websites and then charged monthly to retain them. and then or to, to upkeep them and then also doing like Google ads on top as another means of business. So I want to ask you more about Walter and Reed Consulting in a second. But first, let me get back to you spending eight to 10 hours a day teaching yourself new skills. So first of all, what were you using to learn? Were these free tools online? Were you buying courses? And how was that? That sounds like must be super stressful. Like you graduate college, you go out and now you're like reteaching yourself everything by yourself. Tell me a little bit about that time in your life. Yeah, it was quite intense because I felt like I would wake up really early and I would also do like some exercise. So I'd go to the swimming pool. So I just got myself on like a regimen, I guess. And I was using just online resources because this is around, I want to say 2011, going into maybe 2012 time period. And I was just finding what I could online. Like first I tried PHP, that wasn't really working for me. Like it just wasn't clicking. And then I found Ruby on Rails because everyone kept talking about this. So I just luckily found this Michael Hartle tutorial that's really famous. Like even today, a lot of people use that to learn. And I remember just going through that and I must have did that thing like 10 to like 14 times. It was just like trying to find a way to build something from like zero to one. And I was also learning des- like design as well. So I started getting these books like 
Don't Make Me Think by Steve Krug. That was really huge. So I always take that with me, like in general, when it comes to design thinking, where, for example, if you walk into a room and you see like a light switch, the light switch that you reach for should turn on the lights that you expect it to turn on versus like, you know, having a light switch in, in the bathroom or like outside the bathroom. If you're not able to see it, you, you don't know how it works naturally. So that was a big one. And then I think it's called like the nine designers, like handbook or something like that. And it taught me like four different rules of design. And I just remember doing that repeatedly and just practicing. And then I actually started blogging about it. And that actually starts leading me into like building like the other companies and stuff. But that was just a way for me to document like what I was learning. And then I didn't really share it with anyone, but I just kept it to myself and maybe share it with some friends. How long was that kind of time period for you? How long did it take before you were comfortable enough with all the skills that you've learned to start selling them? Well, I remember doing it for about six months and then I still wasn't super comfortable with the like back end of coding. I remember I was getting pretty good at the front end part of things, but I wouldn't even say good to the point of where I could maybe get like a job. I remember wanting to join like Justin TV at the time. And I think it's like became Twitch also. And I felt like my design skills were more like, were much stronger than like my development skills. So it still wasn't fully there, but I felt like if I just kept at this and then maybe like either found a job, which is through those skills that I had built and trying to get up to San Francisco, because that was like the key thing I wanted to do since I realized that's where everything was going on. That would be the way I could do it. But then I also got contacted by like a friend who also knew someone who was working on like an idea or had this concept and was looking for someone to help develop it. So I felt like that could be a potential opportunity to refine my skills. So now take me back to Walter and Reed Consulting. So you you go out there, you start this company. How did that go? What did that look like? You're obviously brand new to all of this. Was that tough or did you experience success right away? Yeah, that was super tough. I mean, we got the idea actually from like a window cleaner. He was like cleaning the windows and he mentioned his website and he's like, yeah, I just paid this guy $50 a month to just keep up my website. And we were like, oh, whoa, that's super interesting because we also at the time were working on websites, but mostly we like knew someone who was also capable of developing websites. So we didn't really have like the development skill set then. And so we just started putting up websites and reaching out to anyone that we could. I remember doing things like cold calling and people would be like, stop calling me. That was really rough. And then I remember going to chamber and commerce meetings. I was just trying to do all the things that people said like to do, but I was still really, really new to the whole thing. I remember even driving. Oh my goodness. When I think back to this now, like, I think we drove like two hours to like one guy's house. He's like this caterer or something. And we're just like at his house and he's on his couch and he just like finished his shift. So it was just like trying to sell him on a website and he still wasn't sure. It was, it was only like $600 a year actually, because $50 a month price point is what we were aiming for. And he didn't end up becoming a customer. So I remember just like really just trying to do whatever we could to like get in front of anyone who would be willing to get in front of us. But then, yeah, when I look back now, I'm like, oh man, the unit economics of that are pretty crazy. But yeah, just wanting to try to get anything off the ground was was kind of the mindset at that time. Well, I love that hustle, but yeah, definitely charging $50 a month and driving two hours for a potential sale doesn't sound like the unit economics make the most sense. How long did you do that for? 
And at what point did you then transition to your next company? Yeah, so just did that for a few years. We actually ended up working with a veterinary hospital to help like run ads and things like that. So that became pretty helpful because we started seeing a little bit of success, but then at the time it still wasn't enough to fully pursue the idea even further. So then like me and my partner at the time kind of like ran it in different ways. So we like maintained some clients, then he went on to work on more things with some others. And then at that time, that's when I was making that transition to work on like tech products and try to understand how we could build an actual product. And that's when I was like learning the different skills and blogging about it. And then one day I got like a phone call from a friend and he's like, Hey, I like the stuff that you're, you're doing on the website. Cause I, he knew I was like learning how to code and all that. And he's like, I have someone you should meet. He would love to, you know, hop on the phone with you and see if you would like to work on an idea that he has. And I was like, Hey, I think at this time I'm still like learning. So this could potentially be a good opportunity to make it up to San Francisco and like start working on something. So yeah, we pretty much just like got on the phone and decided like, Hey, this could be something that could be interesting to work on. It was like a, so this fundamentally is what becomes chisel, but it started off as a very, very different thing. And it was like, a supposedly like a social network for like salespeople in the sense that if you are a VIP shopper, then you get a certain type of treatment. So we wanted to kind of democratize that to where if you had LinkedIn for your professional contacts and you had Facebook for your friends and Twitter for maybe interests, then like you would have an app for more of these like service providers or like these direct salespeople who could help you continue to get the things that you wanted. So especially in fashion, I think that makes a little bit more sense. But yeah, that's pretty much where we started things. So how did that work? Who were you selling to mainly and and how were you selling Chisel? So ultimately, like the problem came up in the from like the investor that I was like working with in that when he was buying like a home theater system, when the salesperson like you know finished up and said, Hey, yeah, let's let's stay in touch because we want to make this, you know, big like ticket sale, he tried to add him on LinkedIn. And then he felt like that didn't really make sense because you're not really my professional connection. They tried to add him on Facebook. He said, that doesn't make sense either. It's not really a friend. So there was just this missing kind of area where you connect with the people that aren't really a part of those networks, but are more a part of like this service oriented nature or transactional relationship. And it's something that they could potentially use to where they could update you without you feeling like inundated and email also felt like it was a weird channel because that's also a bit like mixed in terms of where you're getting things but i have very very different views on the whole concept today but that's pretty much how we were thinking about it back then and how did that go it sounds sounds super ambitious because to me like a social media channel is probably the hardest of any types of companies just because there's so few that really end up being successful and they just monopolize the industry so what was that experience like Yeah, it was rough. (laughs) It was really, really rough. Like trying to get traction was super tricky. I remember talking to other investors as well. And they were like, I remember going door to door again. I guess I have this common theme of just going door to door and just trying to talk to these fashion boutiques and anyone who was selling things and had these like different customers that they need to keep in touch with. And yeah, I remember trying to pitch them on the idea. And people were, of course, sound like 
excited or they're like, yeah, that sounds cool or things like that. And then I remember talking to investors and like, an investor was like, hey, why don't you just focus on like women's shoes or something? Like, why are you trying to do all these different industries and things like that? And of course, my mindset back then was just like, you know, think huge and do all these different things because, you know, you just don't know anything about anything. So I didn't really get why he was mentioning that, which I understand very, very strongly now about like, you know, creating a wedge in the market and all of that. So that was tough because we were just talking to anyone and everyone who would just talk to us to start. And then we started settling on trying to work in Sausalito and just target like the small businesses there to try to build like a strong local network so that if we can onboard all the shops there, then we can onboard the users there. And then fundamentally we can start to build like a micro network and then grow it from there. So that was the initial thinking and strategy. Well, that evolved over time, of course. Yeah, I think it's important for all founders to kind of know that you have to start out in some sort of small niche before growing. Like no no company did everything at the start. And if you try to do everything well, you won't you won't do anything well. So I want to get to Mighty Scout and influencer marketing. So how did all these kind of experiences lead you to eventually looking into the influencer marketing industry? Yeah, so after working on that concept for a while, I think we must have did seven pivots and it wasn't even a pivot with Chistol. It was like just really jumping into different industries. Like it was like, went from like salespeople to like trying to niche down to maybe like car dealerships and then going into like design communities and then going into a literally like a meme generator. It was like text over image, like a quote generation tool, which was Chisel. And that was like the final iteration of it in a sense. So they were not really leveraging the existing like networks and contacts we built up. It was just jumping all over the place and just trying to grab onto like any sort of idea that was like maybe somewhat interesting or getting any sort of traction. And then that's what taught me a lot about those different lessons of focus and like niching down and like asking customers to pay you for things like right up the gates, like all those different things. And I would say the biggest thing though, from that was just like doing that for two to three years, like kind of the pain of it, of not really making something and like not charging for it was a really big catalyst for me. Cause then the next companies that I started to think about and focus on were like things that make money from day one. And that also didn't require like investment and that could be bootstrapped and things like that. So me and my co-founder, we live together and we've always wanted to like work on something. So we've always talked about different ideas and we started exploring ideas related to marketing. Like I've always felt like the marketing audience is really nice because marketers are really savvy and can be somewhat technical, but then they're also not super technical to the point where they will just say, Hey, I'll just code this whole thing myself. Like that, that makes, you know, makes way more sense. And that pretty much usually never makes sense, even if you are a developer, but like, that's just a different, you know, mindset. So the amount that they can value something is much, much higher. So I, in general, love working with marketers because they're a mix of the two and it's very complementary to like, like our skill set and what we can provide. So yeah, ultimately with Mighty Scout, we just started to talk with different, different friends and we started learning more and more about the space. I remember I had a colleague at my previous company and she's called like the real mac and cheese girl. And she would just take pictures of mac and cheese. And one day she got like messages about like from a hot sauce company asking like, Hey, can we just send you a case of hot sauce so we can take photos next to it? And I thought that was kind of strange and interesting. And I just kept hearing these different stories. So we just really just created a spreadsheet of thousands of different Instagram accounts and then just 
contacted them one by one to see if anyone would jump on the phone and just tell us how they were doing stuff on Instagram. And we just really were learning from scratch, just like, what are people doing? What are the problems that they're facing and what potential ways can we help them? So that's a great way to start a company is just by learning first, because most people aren't patient enough. They think they know everything beforehand. So <laughs> yeah. So how did that lead into Mighty Scout? And I'd love for you to tell both me and, and my audience what the first iteration of Mighty Scout is and kind of how that transformed. Because obviously I know what you guys do today. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of different ways that we, we looked at it. So when we first were talking to people, they just described a bunch of different problems. So people wanted to, you know, grow their Instagram followers. Others wanted to like find different influencers. Others wanted to keep track of what was going on with different influencers. And then, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of different things that people were discussing. Like they want analytics on their account and stuff like that. So we just started to follow these like common threads. And one of the big ones was discovering the different influencers. So rather than just like building stuff, and yeah, it's just, it's crazy how much we like learn from doing stuff from the previous companies and like trying things for years. But yeah, so we just started trying to test that out and ask people to pay us to make these like lists of influencers. So we were making them all by hand. And then we would put like a little bit of a, a front facing thing. I think we actually started with spreadsheets. Yeah, we started with spreadsheets and we would just give them a spreadsheet with like usernames and stuff. And then, because we were doing manually, like looking for people just the way that they did it. And this was all doing two things. It was like teaching us, one, how do people work and how do they do this naturally? And then also two, are they even willing to like pay for it? So we were charging like maybe $30 for like a list of different usernames that hopefully matched their niche. So that was kind of like early days of like experimentation and just like trying to see if people would actually pay for the thing that they're asking for. So you were an influencer discovery platform at the beginning. I didn't, I didn't realize that. And actually, I started off doing something similar. That was my first iteration was just charging people for, you know, like a low amount of money for, for creating lists. So how did that? Oh, cool. Yeah. So how did that kind of transition into what you are today? Because I've found that the influencer discovery segment is super saturated and there's a million choices out there, but the influencer reporting industry there's really not as much there so how did you eventually transition into you know what mighty scout is today yeah so i mean we still do like a little bit in mix of like discovery but it's mostly for like clients that it works really well for so that's one of the things that we carry to this day but then there's also different problems that start to happen once you work with more and more influencers so as we were talking to different teams, we started just learning more and more about the workflow. So there's a bunch of different parts. And one of them, like you said, that's really like not being helped with too much is with the reporting on the influencers. Like, so what happened with my campaigns, like how many influencers posted, what did they post and like all of that. And being able to report on maybe the efficacy of the campaign. Like, did you see some ROI? For example, if you have like some Shopify store, and all of that, that was actually a really big question early on too, was people were like, I don't know how to measure the ROI of influencer. And that was like a, a constant thing that kind of came up. So that didn't come up as much as we spoke with people, but then we had different clients that we were doing this discovery service for, and they just started sharing, continuing to share more of their problems. And some of the agencies in particular 
were mentioning this whole process of like reporting. They're doing it, doing it very, very manually and trying to keep track of different things and using like Google Drive and all of that to keep track of like content. So we just said, hey, how can we bundle this up, you know, one easy place and just make this super easy for them to do so then they don't have to be so manual with the whole creation process. And yeah, we just started working on that and found ways to just sell it to our existing customers. And then shortly, like more and more people started like hearing about it and like finding us through Google and stuff too. So then they also found value. And that's also how we yeah just continue to develop products is just understanding what are those core problems that people have, trying to address them. And then we're learning about more and more new problems that start to happen once those are solved. So it sounds like you've kind of adopted like the lean startup mindset and, and really live by it, right? Which is that how you get most of your ideas and even like, you know, the foundation of your business is just by talking to existing customers or potential customers and shaping your offering around their problems? Yeah, I, I find that as a designer, it feels so difficult now to, you know, design a product without talking to customers. I know that there's some people that are really about that. It's it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you've seen that meme where there's like this Jedi guy on one end and there's like this other <laughs> meme character on the very beginning who like doesn't know what they're doing. But I remember at the very beginning, yeah, just thinking that like we had all the ideas and like we could just figure out what to give to customers. That was probably the first startup. But then over time, you just learned that actually the most important thing is to just charge day one. And then if people don't pay you, then it's not good enough or something is kind of wrong. Like you need that kind of backwards like feedback. So even now, like if we, people ask for like different features or we want to build something new, we still have to kind of understand the willingness to pay because if it's not big enough, then it's not likely a big enough problem. So yeah, we work really, really closely with customers like hop on calls, we record the calls, we try to find common threads. When designing stuff, we'll show some early previews of it. And it's really nice because it feels like kind of a like hack in a sense too, because like I also do sales for Mighty Scale at the moment. So being the on the product design end, doing sales, I get to hear like both sides and try to understand, yeah, what are the features that really matter? And then also how do we design them and build it in a way that's it's really, really seamless and simple for users because I always feel a lot of pain when software is so difficult to use. So finding that whole balance is definitely built upon just talking to customers at the very, very core. It's also a good sales technique too, because you're asking people what they want and they're telling you, and then you're trying to build it. You know, they almost feel like they had a hand in, in what you're building. So why would they not? you know, purchase it or, or stick with you. So once you kind of figured out what you wanted to be, how did you get the word out there? Or was it all just kind of word or of mouth? Like, did you have anything in particular that you did to really spread the word of Mighty Scout? Well, yeah, it was a mix of different factors. But I think at the end of the day, it was just a grind. Like, if we look back and try to understand, you know, what are the like, key and core things, it was just like this daily like March or weekly of how do you keep improving it? How do you keep talking to customers? Because I remember like emailing customers that would maybe leave and asking for feedback and people wouldn't give you feedback. So you're still in the dark as to like, okay, what's missing? What's going on? Or with a sales you know, conversation, like someone doesn't sign up and you ask for feedback and they don't really tell you. So you're still like trying to like find any sort of inkling of like what is missing or what can be improved and then just improving, you know, every week 
on those different things. And then slowly over time, like your efforts start to compound because like you can send out, you know, hundreds or thousands of cold emails, which we've done, but then only a few of those are actually going to really matter or turn into something. And over time, like those will add up, especially as you maybe get a certain customer or you talk to certain people. Like, I mean, for example, as we like speak with you, we learn more and more from people who are in the space. So we just keep accumulating all that sort of knowledge. And then we can use that also as we talk with other companies and try to understand what they're trying to do. So I would say it's just accumulation of like efforts and doing, yeah, just a mix of all the little different things you can try to do. Makes sense. And I'm non-technical myself. So, you know, I leverage a lot of the, you know, best in the market technologies that we can find. So, so I really love to know how long does it actually take you to build stuff? So how long did it take you to build Mighty Scout, you know, at least your first iteration? And how long do, do new ideas take you to build? Yeah, that's probably a better question for my co-founder. But like, I know that we've been working on this for the past five years. So different iterations. I remember, I think the first few months was one of the first iterations where we built like an engagement calculator kind of thing and just the ability to see those lists of influencers in a better way. So that was kind of the, I would say, initial baseline. And then as you grow, there is more technical debt in the sense that like you can't just build a bunch of stuff and then release it like different things have to work pretty well at least. And then there's just a lot more inertia that you're dealing with because you have, there could have been better ways to like structure like the data models, but now you have these different ideas that you're now aware of now. So things can make, take maybe a little bit more time. So I think it it really depends on like the feature size of different things. So that could be with things taking months on like, let's say a big feature end with like, let's say a really big new integration or like it could just take like in the week's timeframe, if it's maybe a additional like filtering capability or something that is an add-on to like the existing product versus like a really big feature release kind of thing. And I know you, you really gear your company towards agencies, but you, you probably also have a few brands on there, no? What percent of your clients are agencies as opposed to brands? And what are some pros and cons about working with each? Yeah, I think it might actually be split. I'm not too sure because I haven't looked at the numbers in particular, but it is interesting. I would say with brands, they can be really nice because they're so, so focused on ROI or very specific things that I think are the like key end goal of uh, a lot of this. But then with agencies, they are also working at like larger scales. So they have a variety of insight working across different brands and their goals can differ. So it can be an ROI focused agency, or it can be one that's focused on brand awareness. And then of course, like content as well. So it's interesting to see both of these different sides. And I think what's nice when we build for like agencies is that everything is, I don't know if I could say like backwards compatible in a sense, but like, we have seen like different products where if you build only with the brand focus first, then as an agency, when you use that product, you can see that it's really clunky when you're trying to manage across 10 different brands because it was built just for one brand. So then usually it results in you having to create a new account per brand versus if we build, for example, agency 
first in a sense, then everything is more inclusive as if you had maybe multiple brands. And then if you are just one brand, then you just act as if it was an agency with one brand, if that makes sense. So I think that that's been a pretty nice bonus to it all. And what are some of the campaigns you are most proud of having been executed on Mighty Scout? So I think in terms of like the campaigns, we mostly look at, I guess the stories that really stand out to me are when people come to us and they say, Hey, I'm literally spending nights and weekends doing this. And like, like even my like partner will be like, Hey, Oh, you're doing, you know, looking through this stuff again and making these like reports or last minute, you know, clippings and things like that. Yeah. And people genuinely feeling bad, like when they would miss some stuff. So being able to hear that, like we help them solve that or like help make their lives easier in that regard is really nice. So I'd say like more on that level is what I would feel more like proud of or happy about than a specific like campaign, so to speak, because you kind of feel a a lot more of the humanity in it all. Once you hear some of these like background stories of what people have to do, if they're just doing everything manually rather than using any sort of tools to help them. Yep. That makes sense. And I guess like sometimes the agencies might, might get more of the credit for the campaigns, whereas you get the credit for saving, saving them the time. I know this was a lifesaver for, for some of my account coordinators who were always having to try and like use software to record everything, like all the stories and manually doing it all. We finally found like an automated solution to do all of that. I want to get to, you know, some of the overall influencer marketing industry stuff that you've seen. So so you started the company, I think you said about five years ago, which in, in this industry is ancient. So how has influencer marketing changed since you started? And what are some stuff that you've seen, you know, grow along in the industry along the way? Yeah, I'd say like, it's kind of interesting to just think back to influencer marketing even before we started. And just the core concept of it all is that like, there's people who are just super passionate about certain things. Like it could be even just, you know, ceramics or building like a certain type of like cup or art or with makeup. And there's always going to be people that are just like so into it and they're happy to share it with, with others. And then there's going to be others who are into it, but they don't really have as much time to do it as often and to share about it. So these like tastemakers are what most people will follow to kind of understand what's interesting, what's new, because there's just not enough time in the day for them to be into it that much. So I felt like that is just like a core fundamental thing, like regardless of what social network exists. And the way we've we've kind of seen it since five years ago is that, you know, different people were doing maybe like a pay for post model, or they were creating content for brands. I remember talking to some brand owners that like people, influencers would ask them for a product. And they would just respond by being like, you're crazy. Why would you want like product from us for free? Like, why would we ever do that? So those were kind of like the early days of it all. And then as it got more and more saturated, then things just get less effective. So then there become new new tactics and all of that. So for example, oh man, there's always been, I think this like big discussion with like fake followers and all of that. And because people were so concerned with like, okay, if this influencer creates a post, if the followers are all fake, then what, what does it matter? I would say the biggest shift is like realizing that it's actually the content that is a big, big piece of it. 
And then maybe like whitelisting the audiences because they also are connected to the influencer. So content became much, a much, much bigger centerpiece to it all because the pay for posts, as an example, just becomes less effective because more and more people are doing it. So even though it still works, it just becomes less effective. So new tactics start to evolve. And then I would say like the influencer seeding strategy is very interesting because then you're giving out products without asking for anything in exchange or in return. So you're finding the people that actually care about your product or actually like it. And it's a more two-way opt-in because now the influencer gets a chance to try the product and then understand, do they actually want to collaborate with the brand or do they even want to share it? They don't have to. And then if they like the product, then there can be like bigger discussions as to what it looks like working together, maybe what types of payments, contracts versus it just being like, you know, purely on an affiliate level. So there's just much more alignment in terms of the brand, finding an influencer that they really value and that influencer that finds the products and a brand that they also value. And then you can just make better content that's more authentic and genuine together because it starts more from that, that point of view. So I think that that is probably one of the more interesting ones. And then leveraging that content in a variety of different channels. So just being able to repurpose it then wins for everyone. So that's how I would say like we've seen things evolve to today. And then I think in the future, it's going to be really, really crazy because you see all these social networks realizing that creators are at the heart of it all. So they're spinning up different programs to like pay them, like some sort of the different funds and include them more in these different things natively. But all these platforms are bolting this on later on versus you're going to start seeing platforms that are more native to where influencers actually own a percentage and they're all the incentives are aligned. So it's going to be a pretty crazy like feature as well as connecting to what we've seen in the past. Do you think any of these social media platforms are going to build something that's really going to compete with, you know, say you or I? So I don't think that they necessarily do in the sense, because at the end of the day, like the networks compete against each other, so to speak, because everyone is buying for like attention. So all brands want to do is go where there is the attention. So they're going to be using a variety of the different networks. So if you are an agency in the space and you do influence marketing for a variety of different networks, then you're required to kind of know what's going on in those different places. So it's like you're almost like a layer on top of all the different people who are competing against each other. Makes sense. So, you know, I think that you have created a really awesome tool in the space, and I'm sure you get to interact with a lot of other kind of companies in the space. So is there anyone else that you look up to in the overall influencer marketing industry? Yeah, I think that the team at like Strawberry Socials is is pretty cool. I know that the the stuff that they do and the stuff that they think about also with TikTok is really interesting. And then just the like the general philosophy that they have is is quite inspiring. So I would say like that's a lot of the from the like maybe platform side of things that we think about. And then just from like an agency point of view, like you guys and like kinship, like all these those different types of agencies that are trying to think through like what can work on the newer end like what's a little bit more cutting edge what can we try and how can we experiment i think that that's also really inspiring because then 
you're working with people that are constantly trying to think through how things can be done a bit better versus the more status quo where they're just trying to figure out ways to do more of the same. I think that those are, that's always just an inspiring thing in general. Yeah. And I definitely agree on the strawberry social side. We've, we've kind of worked with them, you know, right from the start when they were starting out and we were starting out and grown, grown together. And, you know, they even introduced us a while back. So tell me, and this is my last question in terms of Mighty Scout and influencer marketing, but how, how does your ideal future look for you in the next one, five, and 10 years? I know it's, it's always really hard to say. You never know what's going to happen. But if everything goes according to plan, what does that look like for you? Yeah, whew, that's a tough question. Like with yeah, tech and the amount of changes in all these different years. I think, I mean, it still comes down to the core, like philosophy for us, like regardless of like platform or tool or different things like that. Like we fundamentally just want to build like really good products that help save people a lot of time or just like create freedom for them. Because the idea of having to do a bunch of stuff manually over and over and over and feeling so stressed about it, I think that there's like way too much of that (laughs) in general in the world and like I think fundamentally there are going to be these like newer technologies that start to come into play and being able to leverage those to again, kind of fuel that like core mission of like building more like freedom and like, like good products, I would say is more of the guiding light. So I know that that's quite broad, but I think that that helps encompass like what is potentially possible in these like coming years, but then occurs within like a one year time frame, which is a little bit easier to kind of grasp is yeah there's just plenty of things that still need to be just simplified and there's yeah lots of lots of things that people are still doing that take up a lot of time or that are confusing even as they use like a lot of different tools there's just a need for more cohesion and like really good product to help make things a lot less frustrating and simple to get people's like jobs done absolutely so I want to get to a part of my podcast now called the quick fire round. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you questions and you do your best to answer these questions in just 30 seconds or less. And these, these have nothing to do with Mighty Scout per se. It's just more of a chance to get to know you a little better. You ready? Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Do you have any morning rituals that you do to kickstart your day? Morning rituals. I like going for a run when possible. And I would say that would be the key one. Like exercise in the morning is really, really nice. And if I can, being able to do any sort of meditation and getting that kind of in a routine is really good too. Whose content do you listen to, watch, or read the most? I think the All In podcast is probably the big one right now. So that's like Chamath, Jason Calacanis, and them and crew. So I'd say that's a really big one. And then like David Sachs does a lot of stuff on like SaaS. So those would be the big ones. What is your favorite book of all time? Favorite book is definitely The Goal by Eli Goldratt. I think it's an amazing book in the sense of how the story is told. And it teaches a lot of counterintuitive things that you yeah you just wouldn't really realize unless you've read the book because it's just if i don't even know how to describe it without spoiling it but that's definitely one of my favorites 
What is your favorite purchase of $100 or less? $100 or less. That is a, I'm trying to think rapidly what that could be. <laughs> Maybe one of just my simple like black t-shirt. Like I've fallen in love with like tri-blend t-shirts. I realized like there's certain ones that I would wear all the time and it happened, just so happened to be that they're a tri-blend. So getting those rather than just like a random t-shirt just feels really, really nice. Where is your favorite place that you've ever been to? Favorite place probably has to be Tokyo. I think it's just a really magical place, both with people or by yourself. And you just get a variety of different, really good food options and just like the convenience store culture and ramen and all these different things. The crazy density of people is, it's really magical. Like it's someplace you feel a little bit more transformed in the sense that like you have this culture shock of not being able to maybe read anything or understand anything. That's probably the one place I'd recommend to everyone. And this is my last question here. What advice would you give to someone looking to build their own influence, whether that is in the business or influencer world? Yeah, I think it's so, so important to like find the different things that you like to do. And then fundamentally, if you like to do them, hopefully you are doing them normally or regularly. And then you will get better at them naturally because you don't really consider it like work and stuff. And yeah, combining different skills or like aspects like being like T-shaped is really helpful because then you can, if you're good at all those different things or slightly good at, you know, the two others, but really good at one, then the combination of those is what can really create some specialness. And then lastly, applying that to like a particular niche. So if you're really into, let's say customer success, but then you also invest in, let's say automation and with emailing, and then you also have a way to kind of help with sales, then like that combination of skills is like, insanely powerful than if you just focus maybe on just like one particular thing. Awesome, Joe. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on today. And I think that my listeners out there can learn so much from you from, you know, driving two hours to try and get a small deal to starting another company and pivoting seven times to what you've built today, which is, you know, one of the market leaders in the category. So really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. Yeah, for sure. Super grateful that you had me on. And thanks again for yeah taking the time. And that was Hunting Influence. To find out more about Influence Hunter and how we source micro and nano influencers to exponentially grow the reach of your brand, visit influencehunter.com. And then make sure to search for Hunting Influence in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Influence Hunter, thanks for listening.